Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello and welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Alexandre. Let's meet the panel. Ros Taylor is a writer and Podmaster's new contributing editor. Hello, Ros. Hello, Alex. Georgia Meloni is the new Prime Minister of Italy. She cites Viktor Orban as an inspiration, but also praised Mussolini in her youth. The Guardian has described her as fascist adjacent. What precisely is the political space adjacent to fascism? I don't actually like using the word fascist much. I think it gets thrown around too much. It's as if people got sort of a bit tired of hearing about Nazism, so they <laughs> changed to fascism. And uh, it's it's it stops you engaging with what these people actually want mm. uh, and what they're actually going to do. And that, with Maloney, is not at all clear. I mean, tradition, tradition fascism <laughs> is something that we would associate with totalitarianism, a kind of nation first policy with self-sufficiency through a very, very reduced economic policy, nationalism, militarism. And there's elements of that in her thinking and Mm. what she says. And of course, her party, Brothers of Italy, has historic links to Benito Mussolini's party. It's like a direct descendant. And that's why she's been called fascist adjacent, as you say. She's illiberal. She's incredibly keen on family values. She's incredibly patriotic. She is certainly on the far right. But nonetheless, she has been moving away from some of her more extreme positions recently. She was all for leaving the EU. Now she seems to have cooled on that. She was all for Putin since the invasion of Ukraine. She has cooled on that too. So if I had to describe her as something, I would say I would say far-right populist. I'm not sure I would say fascist. Hmm. I did uh, an interview with Chiara Albanese all about the Fratelli d'Italia movement, and I think she would agree with uh, what you just say. Listeners can look for the podcast on the bunker feed. Um, Ian Dunt is back in the studio after a while away with his nose in a book, his own book. Obviously, he doesn't read anything else. Hello, Ian. Yes, you did make it sound like I took a holiday in order to reread all my books. <laughs> <laughs> Ian, we recently had a chat on our uh, bijou side hustle, Oh God, What Else, where you explained to me public school mode, how you got lost in the jungle once and went into a weirdly confident state, which equated being decisive with being right and actually ended up more and more lost. Is this what we're basically seeing from this government? No, no, I think what we're seeing right now is a much more universal human experience of absolute terror. Mm. And, I mean, you can see that it's not like, you know, for a start, you know, between Friday and Wednesday is not a long time to push ahead with a set of budget proposals. You know, <laughs> that's not stubborn. That's just normal. Um, and I think the reason they haven't sort of backed down yet is because they're in a state of, of absolute panic, which isn't helped by virtue of the fact that every in this kind of specific scenario, anytime you say something, the, the market can swing yeah. on the basis of what yeah. you're saying. So by virtue of speaking, you can potentially worsen the situation, even if you say nothing. Um, of any consequence. So, no, I, I don't think that's what we're seeing in this particular <laughs> instance. It's much more widely applicable to things like Johnson during COVID and all of that. Right. Well, they did promise shock and awe. We're waiting for the awe mm. to be delivered. Um, our guest today is our first to have appeared on The Masked Singer. 
but that's only because Mel B and Michael O are now ghosting me. Um, along with four wonderful volumes of memoirs in 2019, he wrote a mystery novel, The Late Train to Gypsy Hill. His second, One of Our Ministers is Missing, is out now. <laughs> former Home Secretary, Trade, Education, Health, former Deputy Leader. It might be easier to list the cabinet position he hasn't held. Alan Johnson, welcome to the podcast. Welcome. I saw Ian laughing there that the title probably <laughs> could have been changed to all of our, all of our ministers. Are <laughs> <laughs> um, MPs are no strangers to the publishing side hustle. John Burko wrote about tennis. Nadine Doris has a whole catalogue of bodice rippers, as they're called. Um, why did you alight on the mystery novel as your genre of choice? Because I had this idea ever since uh, Litvinenko about that was 2006. I was I was education secretary at the time, but so nowhere near the kind of debates about what was happening um, with that poisoning in a London hotel in a cup of tea containing polonium 210. But I've always been interested in getting onto fiction, and this idea developed about a waitress who just made a mistake and served the wrong order and gave the kind of poisoned tea or coffee to the Mm. would-be poisoner. And so when I eventually managed to, when I was sick of writing about myself and really wanted to tackle the really, I think, the difficult part of writing, you know, developing character and plot, creating a world that you can, that your readers will amazingly become involved in for 80,000 pages of it, um, it, this this was the first thing that came to mind. Mm. And because I then got a three-book deal with the same detective, um, yeah, I wasn't going to quibble with that. And I suppose, you know, if I was 30 years younger, I'd be thinking there's a great historical novel I want to write or, you know, some of the stuff that Ian's probably been working on over the last year or two. <laughs> but I'm not, I'm not 20 years younger. And here's suddenly this opportunity to write fiction. And I'm perfectly happy to keep writing about Louise Mangum for as long as publisher wants me to. Um, the the titular missing politician is Foreign Office Minister Lord Bellingham. Is he based on anyone in particular? No, certainly not Henry Bellingham, who you may remember. <laughs> because, yes, yeah, because Spencer yeah. Percival. Uh, and and he, one of his de descendants uh, came into Parliament around about the same time as me. And I'm not sure whether he's in the Lords now. I think he but is in the Lords now, actually. Is he? Yeah. yeah. But the name just, just struck me as a, as, a, as a good name. Lord Bellingham seemed right. I didn't think about the ramifications of that until afterwards, but he hasn't sued me yet, so it's not him. <laughs> no, it's just, you know, the kind of people who come into the Lords disgracefully in our system come in because, you know, someone looked after the Prime Minister's spouse's dogs for a while. They'll get in the Lords. You know, yeah. it's a terrible system. And so given that someone had to go missing in the White Mountains of Crete, I wanted it to be a peer and there's bits, in, I mean, the politics, as you've, you've read part of it, I know, the yeah, politics yeah. very much noises off stage. I mean, this is a mystery. My first one was more of a love story than, than anything. Yes, you're right. Anyone. Had it been a very central government figure, a completely different set of machinery would have swung into action. Yeah. Um, but yes. making him quite a junior sort of obscure yes, figure. Yes, important enough for the Greek police yeah, yeah. to to have a liaison officer from Scotland Yard, which is how I got Louise Mangan involved yeah. over there, um, but not senior enough to send everything else, you know, that would, that would, you know, if God forbid, you know, Liz Truss went missing at the weekend, you know, there'd be a much greater story. <laughs> did, did you have to do a lot of research that may have looked to the casual observer like uh, a lot of long holidays by the sea? <laughs> no, I didn't. I was joshing with you before we went on air. Um, I love Crete. And my wife suggested to me, as we drove through the White Mountains, what a perfect place for a minister to go missing. And Sounds like a threat. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it does sound a bit like a <laughs> Were you having a, a domestic at the time? <laughs> yeah, no. Funny enough, she dropped me off and then the car disappeared, but she did come back. <laughs> In this week's show, Truss and Kwarteng's budget proves about as popular as a prosecutor at a Trump rally, and reports are that letters of no confidence are already being drafted. Surely there's a template by now. <laughs> Labour's conference was an absolute love-in, but do they look ready to step into the economic vacuum the Tories will leave behind? 
Plus, in the extra bit for Patreon backers, Kenneth Branagh has strapped on the prosthetics to play Boris Johnson in the new series about the pandemic, This England. Too soon? Before we get started, a little bit of news. If you're enjoying our companion podcast, Doomsday Watch, and its world tour of the apocalypse is to come, the first ever Doomsday Watch is happening in London on Thursday the 6th of October, nuclear war permitting. It's all taking place at 21 Soho, a venue near Tottenham Court Road, and tickets are on sale now. Presenter Arthur Snell will be talking Ukraine and more with nerve agent expert and former US Secret Serviceman Dan Cazetta. And our producer Andrew will turn the tables on Arthur and interview him about serving in Afghanistan, Zimbabwe, Yemen, Iraq, and the front lines of podcasting. Search Doomsday Watch 21 Soho to find tickets, or just follow the link on the show notes. First this week, I bet the Tories are ready for Rishi now, after only days on the job. (laughs) After only days on the job, Kwarteng's trastronomics looks about as astute as a Trojan night manager saying, what a gorgeous wooden horse, of course I'll sign for it. (laughs) Sterling has lost a chunk of his already weak value, interest rates are expected to climb to 6%, lenders have withdrawn their fixed rate mortgage products, Analysts are predicting Quasi Kwarteng's plan for growth will actually shrink the economy. There are reports of blazing rows in Downing Street and the Bank of England had to step in on Wednesday to bail out the Treasury from the Treasury's plan with Treasury money. Ian, on Wednesday morning, the Bank of England announced a gilt market operation in an attempt to keep interest rates under control. What is actually going on? They're basically trying to prevent a run on pension schemes. Um, Guilt, it's annoying that we have all these different... uh, Because what happens is people fixate on is the pound going to fall underneath or or reach parity with the dollar, which doesn't really matter all that much because that's something you can understand. Anyone that's been on holiday can understand that. The bond market is much weirder. And as soon as we start talking about guilts and yields and securities, everyone just switches off. But of course, it is much more important. All it really is is when we talk about sort of yields on guilt, it's basically just an interest rate on an IOU. That is all it is. It's just government debt. There's no more or less complex than that, although the ramifications extend throughout society, really. Um, We've seen this before. We've seen this type of action before. I mean, we saw it during the financial crash. We saw it during Brexit. It's what you do the very last stage when you have to step in to prevent something truly catastrophic from happening. The distinction is those were all external events. The financial crash, I'm sure the government had responsibility, it should have done something, but, you know, it was not something that it was planning for. It was not part of its proposals that it put to the Commons. The same with Brexit. I mean, the government was against Brexit when it ran on the the referendum. Uh, This, I mean, I don't know. To me, this is unprecedented. And maybe Alan has has a a memory of something that that would parry with it. I've never seen this kind of scale of Bank of England intervention in order to repair the damage done by the government five days beforehand. That seems to me like an absolutely astonishing, unprecedented, historic sort of state of affairs. Indemnified by the Treasury, by the absolutely, way. Absolutely, of so, course. It has yeah. to be. I mean, this, is, this is a massive deal. I was I was texting with my husband, who uh, you know, actually has a degree in economics. He's fundamentally an economist. That's not what he does at the moment. And he said to me, think of it as a doctor saying, just to be on the safe side, we're going to move you to intensive care. <laughs> um, it's a massive, massive deal. Yeah, especially considering that yesterday the Bank of England said... We're not going to stop with um, basically issuing guilds. And now they're buying guilds. I mean... They're basically doing QE again. Yeah. It's essentially where yeah, we've yeah, ended up. Yeah. Which, they're, which they're incidentally... money to buy yeah. government debt. And Liz Trust, you, you may remember. I mean, I suppose this stuff doesn't remember now, but she did talk in the summer of how that was something that she didn't particularly want to happen. When you saw John Redwood, okay, this morning, one of the intellectual architects, who we actually expected to have a seat at the cabinet table at some point during this, but certainly an intellectual architect of what was going on. They blame, I mean, illiterate, nonsense, absolute fucking guff. But nevertheless, they blame QE as one of the reasons that we have inflation in the first place. Okay, now QE is part of the factor to protect the government from the things that it itself is trying to do. Mm. The International Monetary Fund openly criticised the UK government's tax cut plans. Is this unusual or embarrassing? Is it a big deal? Well, it's embarrassing. I mean, it's not unusual... In the, the IMF has criticised the British government several times before. You may remember in 2013, the IMF criticised George Osborne for going too far, too fast in mm. austerity, correctly, as it happened. Um, but George Osborne, to his credit, took it on board, disagreed with it, accepted it as an, as an alternative economic view, okay, and then ignored them. 
Now, something, the fundamental thing that happened that changed with our relationship with the IMF was in 2016, which is when during the referendum, it said, if you do this, it is going to fuck you in several different ways. And at that point, they were not treated with the respect of saying, sure, you have credibility. Sure, this is an economic argument that we disagree with. Vote Leave said they are talking Britain down. They don't have Britain's interests at heart. IMF was in that list of organizations that Pfizer Islam read to Michael Gove. When yeah. He said, these yeah. are the organizations that said we're going to be off. Michael Gove said, well, we don't care about experts anymore. Now, that that approach is now permeating through government. It did with May, it did with Johnson, and it very much is with trust of any outside body, anyone with specialist expertise that tries to scrutinize us in any way, we will ignore. They did it by getting rid of the permanent secretary. They did it by sidelining the Office of Budget Responsibility. And now they're going to do it with the IMF. I think Scholar was a big signal, actually. Um, uh, Roz, some of the Brexit gang, as Ian says, including august luminaries like Hanan, Frost, Lilico, Redwood and the Bruges Group um, have described markets as woke and the IMF as a left-wing body. I am very confused. Wednesday was all about trusting free markets. The days since about how we must ignore free markets. What's, what's going on? God, I mean, woke has ceased to. It's just become an all-purpose. The front of the Telegraph today was having uh, Alison Pearson whinging about strictly being too woke, and now the markets are too woke. There's nothing that can't be too woke, however insane the application of that word is. I mean, the claim is here that, you know, markets don't really understand what Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng are trying to do, and that, therefore, they must believe harder, which would obviously <laughs> change their change their mood and make them more upbeat about the future of Britain, so they would stop you know, selling off uh, British British stocks. And, and, and this is a familiar reflex. It's, a, it's, it's the strategy to always blame someone else. It seems to be reaching such a point of insanity that I wonder how much longer this can persist and I wonder how long this government can persist. But we're going to no doubt get to that later. Mm. <laughs> they love the invisible hand until it gives them the invisible finger, it seems to me. Um, same people have also advanced the theory, and I love this juxtaposition, that the market reaction is not to the budget, but to the prospect of a Labour government. So these woke lefty markets um, are terrified of a Labour government. I mean, will Starmer ever recover from this? Anyone who puts forward that theory, (laughs) frankly, has debased themselves in the eyes of the people they think they ought to be backing because they should not be suggesting that at this point we could possibly have a Starmer government. You know, I mean, it's maybe too long ago to blame the last Labour government for everything. So now we're moving on to the one that Yes, it was all the fault of the last Labour government until it's the fault of the next Labour government. Now, lols aside, uh, Kwarteng has said he will give more details in his budget proper in eight weeks. Trust has not said a word. Every line of that budget is getting more expensive, by the way, day by day as borrowing costs climb. Starmer and Reeves are in battle mode. Can the government's holding pattern really last eight weeks? No. I don't think they know what to do at the moment. And that is why we are not seeing Truss and we are not seeing Kwarteng. We had reports earlier this week that they were actually fighting, which surprised me somewhat because I thought apparently they were all supposed, both supposed to be on the same page and thinking exactly the same way. But allegedly Kwarteng was saying we have to make a statement to reassure the Bank of England and Truss said no. So they were fighting over that. I can only assume that things are in such absolute chaos that they simply do not want to know what to do because to retreat from their plan at the moment would mean the most enormous climb down. It would be it would be the repudiation of everything they currently stand for, yeah. not just to retreat on the details of the mini-budget that were put out last Friday, but the very act of retreating is totally against the persona that Truss has managed to build up for herself yeah. with her Thatcherite cosplay. And I think their brains are exploding. I, I heard someone, by the way, call her Margarine Thatcher which I thought was very good. And then someone replied, I can't believe she's not better. (laughs) Um, Alan, the conservative Brexit wing has looked to make a political enemy of the Bank of England for a while now, starting with Mark Carney. 
Kuateng says he continues to support the bank's independence, but the right-wing press seems to me to be sniffing around them as a possible scapegoat. What, what do you think will happen? Yes, they're, they're saying that if the Bank of England had acted earlier, we wouldn't be in this problem. Inflation wouldn't be at 10% and, and all of that. But none of that washes because they're suggesting that no, this is nothing to do with Friday's announcement. Mm-hmm. The Daily Mail buried this story away on page 14 this morning. <laughs> yeah, you know, and they can see uh, the effects of this. I mean, the worrying thing about the Bank of England's intervention in the gilt markets today is that the pound sank further. It's down, uh, last time I looked, at $1.05. So they really, really are in trouble. And just going back to what you were saying about trying to blame the previous Labour government, that's not unusual. What's unusual about Kuateng is he's blaming the previous Conservative government. <laughs> yeah. you know, they, and, and that is really great for us because Labour have been trying to point out, look, 12 years you've had a Conservative government, Austerity was the Conservative government trying to, you know, make people forget about that is part of what their policy now. Cutting the police by 20%, 20% of police numbers disappeared. Mm. That happened under the same government as busily trying to recruit police officers to make up for that. But, but Alan, it, it went off stage very briefly and came out wearing a new wig. Yeah. Surely it's a different. Per- We're meant to suspend disbelief yeah. in this uh, in this panto, aren't we? And I think what happened was every they suspended disbelief within the Conservative Party because they just had an internal debate over mm-hmm. six weeks in the summer. Nobody else was involved in it, and it's a object lesson that if you just examine your navel and talk to your you know what less than two percent of the population and think you've got some great victory, then you face the real world. I mean, this feels like having, Ian said he can't think of a precedent for this. Closest precedent was Barber's budget in 1972. Mm, But that wasn't as incompetent as this. This looks like two economics A-level students have been let loose in number 10 and number 11 Downing Street. The inexperience that they're displaying is just mind-boggling. Yeah, Professor Blanchflower was on Sky News yesterday, and he he was pretty sure that in his fifty years of economics, there's no precedent for this. He actually said that it's like they've gone for the boom in that case, but without the boom, they've gone sort of straight to the bust. Um, a part of that budget. Now, Ian mentioned the sacking of Tom Scholar, and. Do you think that sacking and the sidelining of the OBR were clear signals that Truss and Kwarteng were not interested in caution? They were not interested in disagreement or dissent. Is this the extension effectively of Brexit cakeism, believing you can sort of wheel a different set of facts into existing if you just believe hard enough? Yes, I, I knew Tom Scholar. I worked with Tom Scholar and his father, who was a very renowned permit secretary at DTI when I went there as a junior minister. Tom Scholar, uh, it, uh, David Cameron would say this and Gordon Brown would say this, is an absolute, absolutely brilliant civil servant. Sacking him was uh, a clear message as to what's going to happen next. Sidelining the OBR, which, of course, the Conservatives themselves created, that's now a nest of left-wing hippies, apparently. Um you could tell, and the, the lack of analysis by the OBR, which is what they're there to do, left a vacuum that everybody else jumped into to make their own uh, analysis. So there mm. were two really big mistakes. You know, I can see them perhaps trying to stamp their authority very early on, but not sacking the permanent secretary, including the OBR, perhaps in that budget speech, leaving out the banker's bonuses bit. That, that would have... Yeah, yeah. Kind of, you know, in, ter- in terms of the British public sitting there thinking, now who's really been hit through over the last few years? It'll take them a long time to get to conclusion that it's the bankers <laughs> who can't manage on bonuses of two hundred percent of their salary. So those gaffes, you know, so many of them in such a short space of time, just the, uh, you know, the inelegance of it all. The thing is, it's not even just that they make the errors by not having the scrutiny. 
Yeah. It's also that the market reaction becomes more severe because we are getting rid of our own risk premium. It's yeah, because yeah. of these yeah. institutional factors that we put on decision making that we get that kind of generosity from the markets, you know, on bonds because you're like, we're not marking our own fucking homework. As soon as you go, well, actually, all of this looks insane and we're going to market ourselves. And the markets obviously take note of that fact. And, and that's something I wanted to ask all of you, actually, that, you know, is this what comes of escaping scrutiny? Have conservatives effectively profoundly misunderstood the role of criticism in forging robust policy? Because it seems to me prorogation was something everyone was advising against internally, went ahead and did it anyway, fell on their face. The uh, the Northern Irish Protocol, same stuff. The Rwanda policy, same stuff. What, What do you think, Rose? It seems to me that this is a group of people who are suffering huge amounts of hubris, but in a sense, you can't blame them. I mean, I do blame them, clearly. But I know why they think. I know why they think the way they do. They think the way they do because they have succeeded in doing something profoundly stupid and irrational in the case of Brexit that only a small majority of UK voters supported that was not sold in any way that gave an indication of what it would actually do to the country. You may recall, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, we were never going to leave the single market. And then we had to leave the single market. Mm. And the more they have pushed for the most extreme versions of whatever policy they are after, the more they have got. They have always kept the support of the right wing press. Even Johnson didn't lose it. But from the mail, uh, the, uh, the disastrous end of his premiership, they have kept pushing. And what is the lesson that you take from that? Mm. The lesson from you take from that is that whatever the hell you do, you will still get that policy through. And there is nothing institutionally or in terms of the fourth estate, that can possibly stop you. Mm. That is why they think the way they do, and that is why they are behaving in the way they do right now. It's not as if this stuff didn't happen, right? Like, they were warned, if you do this uh, on Brexit, exporters are going to get damaged. Now, those exporters did get damaged. That is a thing that actually fucking happened to people. And just because it wasn't really covered very much in the news didn't mean that it didn't actually happen to them. Well, now, the thing that they would have been warned about by, quote, treasury orthodoxy in the form of Tom Scholar or the OBR would have been, if you do this, this is the kind of reaction that you can get. Well, that is fucking happening now. Or Rishi Sunak, for that matter. Or Rishi Sunak, yeah, the great (laughs) Czech Nevada of the Conservative Party. um, During the leader... Ian, on that, how significant do you think is the presence of these various economists for Brexit, the people who were preaching precisely what you said before the referendum, acting as self-described unofficial advisors to this government. We've seen a parade of Minford, Lyons, Lilica, Jessup desperately trying to defend these policies. Is this as simple as Truss having had just really awful advice? I think that makes it too easy on her. And some of the advice isn't, you know, I mean, it's it's almost unfair to, to... to sort of put them all in together. I mean, Lilico is obviously just a degenerate moron, right? <laughs> but but if you, you know, Julian Jessops isn't. Mm. Like, you know, that is a smart guy. I mean, I fundamentally disagree. But yeah. if, you list, if you look at the argument he's making, it's actually, it's, it's fairly nuanced. It's like he is pointing that there is a problem with the bond market. He's very good. If you heard him on the Today programme this morning, he's very good in the same way, oddly, that I think John McDonnell was good at softening the edges of Corbynism. He sounds quite reasonable, yeah, yeah, Jessops. And so you think, oh, this doesn't sound like too much of an emergency. And then as soon as he stops talking, you look at the news and you're like, oh, my God, Jesus Christ, we're completely <laughs> fucked. But you wouldn't have known it when he's talking. So, so they're fairly diverse in that sort of way. I think she's just seeking for a detritus of intellectual justification for the things that appealed to her. Just half-convoluted instincts that she possessed. Shall I tell, That's you, what they shall I tell you why I'm asking? Because... It seems to me from their reaction and what's happened since then that they genuinely didn't expect this. Mm. You know, if if these people were giving economic advice to the government, they may have chosen this course of action, but they would have said, um, look, it's going to be mayhem for a couple of weeks, stay the course, it's going to calm down, you know, expect this. It seems to me from what I've seen that they thought this was going to go down a treat, that people were going to be lining the streets and applauding them for bringing back proper conservatism, that they were genuinely taken by surprise. But haven't we all been taken by surprise? I mean, I certainly have. So, I mean, the piece I wrote 
after the budget was very critical and said that lots of bad things will happen as a result of this, I certainly didn't think that we would be in this position in five days' time. Mm. And that's partly because we talk about this thing called the market and we slightly anthropomorphize it. What it is is billions of individual decisions yep. taken in a situation of information scarcity. Okay? And like on that basis, it's very hard to predict when tipping points come. This was the argument that was used against us for years on austerity. Where is the tipping point? Where is the tipping point where suddenly the market tells you too much debt? Well, here it is. This is what it looks like. It is happening right now. Mm. Alan, politically, is there a way out of this kind of tailspin? I mean, once you're in the eye of the storm, the press begins to turn, markets are betting against you, and you are merely reacting to events. Is there any way to, and I say this with bitter glee, to take back control? <laughs> Those three words. Um no, I don't think there's no easy option for them. Every option is a bad option. What does she do? She sacks Croitant. Well, she's so bound together with her chancellor that that, that won't work. Mm. Can she do what you were suggesting? I, I, I think Ros was, was absolutely right. If they back down from this, their big flagship policy that in a way got them elected in those debates amongst conservative voters, when Rishi Sunak had to make the argument, look, sorry, I know it's the highest tax rate for 70 years, but there's a reason for that. And you can't just reduce taxes at this stage, at some stage maybe. I mean, he was the grown-up in the room. Um, so so she can't back down. If they U-turn on this, they're almost in a worse situation. Than so there's, a, there's there. a second mm -hmm. really horrible option there, which is swinging cuts. Yeah, I mean, that's what he's going to... It's either at Monday at the Tory party conference when the Chancellor will speak, uh, traditionally at Tory conferences, and that gets them into trouble because all the other parties are saying recall Parliament and come there to, to say what yeah. you want to do. But on Monday, he could well announce that, you know, here's, here's a little taster for how we're going to pay for this, and we're going to pay for it by cutting public services. Back to the age of austerity, whereas really most of this policy has been built on the fact that the age of austerity was wrong. The criticism mm. of George Osborne for the way that he handled things after 2010, and suddenly they're going to be in the same in the same situation. So there's no easy way out for themselves, but for them, neither should there be, given the magnitude of the error that they've made. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Next up this week, Buoyed by a spectacular poll that put his party 17 points ahead over the last few days, Starmer and the Labour Party were tasked with proving that they are ready for government after several years of internal turmoil. The Labour conference in Liverpool was remarkably disciplined, remarkably on message, remarkably positive and remarkably well received. Dare I say it, remarkably unlabor like His speech received standing ovation after standing ovation and what was just as pleasing is that it stood at the centre of pitch-perfect speeches by what looks like a really strong front bench. Reeves, Cooper, Nandy, Rayner, Miliband especially all did very well. When the Sun and Telegraph correspondents have to grudgingly accept, I guess that wasn't too bad, it begins to feel like a turning of the tide. Alan, you were in opposition on Black Wednesday. Was there a sense then that it was, as Starmer describes it, a Labour moment, that if you could beat Tories and the economy, the odds had changed? You can almost feel the mood shifting towards us and towards... Keir Starmer. So I think, you know, uh, we've had plenty of um, uh, examples of thinking we're on the verge of coming back into power and it's all gone wrong. But this feels this feels very different. And I think the two things have happened. I mean, if this is, you were speaking about the Tories' sense of entitlement, well, part of that is because how rubbish the opposition hmm. has been. You know, 
I, I like Ed. He's a very very good in the position he's in. But David Miliband should have won in 2010. It would have been completely different, and Ed would have been able to come through as the younger brother and eventually, you know, ch- attain a great stature. Then we went mad with the the Corbyn years. So the Tories were entitled to feel not just this lack of scrutiny we were talking about uh, with trust with you know the OBR and all that, but a lack of scrutiny by the opposition. Real proper scrutiny with a leader who was who the public could think of as a future prime minister. Now, just as that happened, I mean, I think he would have had a good conference this week, even without um, Black Friday, let's call it. Um, but that certainly played into uh, his narrative and our narrative. Hmm. How do you think the shadow team will be feeling right now, especially the Treasury um, shadow team. On the one hand, it's a gift to be leading on this and have the government bank to rights. On the other hand, Labour's job, if it does win the next election, just got harder by orders of magnitude. Yeah, that's true. But you won't solve any of that or even begin to address them unless you're on the pitch. And to be on the pitch, you've got to win an election. No, after 12 years, I mean, God, opposition is so depressing you know the 18 years that we went through um where you know you remember when we got back into power i remember the first day i was then a new mp from behind the speaker's chair came david blunkett with his guide dog who then was lucy lucy led david blunkett to the opposition front bench there's a metaphor <laughs> for the Labour Party. I mean, I think Simon Hoggart in The Guardian said mm. in any civilised country they'd have let Lucy in early to pee on the government bench so that she could find her way back there. Um, so after after these very bright politicians like Rachel Reeves and West Streeting have spent so long just, you know, as Tony Blair famously said, in opposition you wake up every morning wonder what you're going to say. In government you wonder what you're going to do. Yes, there'll be a challenge there. There's no easy way to take over government, and I think I think they'll be they'll be straining at the leash. You know, mm. let's have an early general election. I doubt whether that's going to happen now. You think? I mean, I don't know if there's a mechanism for it to happen. Actually, um, Ros, the the slogan for this conference was a better, greener future. Is there a risk Labour's plan? to fight the election and the economy could be undermined by the green message? Or is it actually the trust government that fails to recognise how mainstream climate change has become as an issue? I don't think there's any chance at all that it could, that green message could undermine Labour's popularity. It's extraordinary to me what a tin ear trust has for public opinion. And it's not just over climate change per se, it's fracking as well. Uh, fracking, it's not just that people don't like the idea of it. It's uh, as an abstract. People know what it would mean for parts of Britain, which they are often very attached to and find very beautiful, and they simply do not want it to happen. And the fact that it is not going to happen because it's too expensive and it wouldn't get enough fuel out of the ground anyway doesn't seem to have permeated her brain at all. She seems to have no feeling for what public opinion is on this. And we see this over and over again with with, um, polls, that people want to have green, renewable policies. And that's not, of course, what this government is giving them, albeit there was some kind of offshore wind thing in the mini budget that largely got overlooked. But it was it was it was fairly small beer. I was a bit surprised to hear some suggestions from Labour camp that this green plan, plan felt like Ed Miliband's plans all over again. And, you know, that's not the point, really. I mean, it's far too important to worry about it having been in the past associated <laughs> with someone who yes. was not the most successful Labour leader. Um, it's just far, far too urgent for that. And I think people are after the summer that we've had, realise that. Mm. One of the biggest announcements was Great British Energy, a new renewables company publicly owned that will join the market when Labour gets into power. This goes hand in hand with the creation of a sovereign wealth fund. You know my views on this from previous um, panels. Um, Do you think this mixed approach can work? 
Yeah, I th- uh, as far as I can tell, I think it's uh, obviously not the same as nationalising energy companies, and there are parts of Labour that would like to nationalise energy companies. But Starmer, in his speech yesterday, made a good point about how many of Britain's energy companies are partly or wholly owned by foreign companies mm. or even foreign governments, and yeah. so those are the uh, those are the people who are benefiting when we pay our energy bills now. And I think he's right although it is fundamentally a nationalistic project, it is it is right to try and create a fund that will invest in renewables and be able to make riskier investments than the private sector might be prepared to make on its own. Um, and that's ba- basically the principle of EDF yeah. in France, which is publicly owned and, yeah. of course, does o- it, it does own uh, one of Britain's energy companies. And the whole Norwegian state is... Set up like that. Ian, um, Starmer's speech went down really well in the hall. Is is it unkind to say that he remains a less than electrifying speaker? But after the last few days, is his relative beigeness beginning to look like an asset, actually? He's all right, isn't he? He's nothing, it's not terrible. It's, I think, you know, seven out of ten or something. Oh, no, not the dreaded seven out of ten. He's, he's sort of all right. He's always all right. He's better now than he was, certainly. You can tell over the summer he's had all sorts of yeah, training and you can see it in media interviews. You can tell it by the tone of his voice. He, he's much improved. He's, he's pretty good. He's never going to be the most, ex- you know, Neil Kinnock has this thing where he's like, well, it's almost like by accident we stumbled on the perfect leader for the moment. You know what I mean? Like, and just in terms of projecting the mm. things that people might wish for at the point that the election comes, where you're just like, okay, well, maybe actually I wouldn't mind someone who checks that all the I's have been dotted yeah. and the T's have been crossed. Yeah. And maybe a little bit of just let's just calm down for a bit work. I also think, and I say this as a sort of slap on the wrist to myself, really, who's questioned him several times over this. He sort of laid out and told us what he was going to do almost in sort of yearly cycles. It's like, right, first of all, decontaminate. Second of all, discredit government. You know, third of all, put put forward our own policies. And you could see him following the fucking thing. And where he got to with this one is he talks about tearing out anti-Semitism by the root. He gets a long-standing ovation, genuine from the hall. Mm. You know, he talks about, he talks in patriotic terms about Ukraine, about the country itself, about having the national anthem. It works in the hall. When you think back to the sort of almost purposefully pushed internal divisions of last year at the conference, that almost feels like the last dwindling cry of of the Corbyn guys trying to get a hearing. So actually, in terms of the strategy that he laid out, he has pretty much fucking delivered on that year by year by year. Yeah. He's pledged to get uh, one and a half million people on the housing ladder, caught my eye. Friend of the show, Tom Peck, has said that for young voters, all the disenfranchisement with mainstream politics stems from not being able to get anywhere near the housing ladder. Is he right? Well, there's a lot of truth there. I mean, it's, 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 it's even more severe than that, isn't it? It's, it's a generational assault, really, yeah. you know, by, by a party that only has interest in one part of the population. I mean, you could, you could expand it more, right? You could look at the difference of the treatment of, I mean, it seems ironic saying it now, but like national insurance and income tax, right? Like income tax is paid for by people typically who have jobs, national insurance, you know, in that capacity isn't much more, you know, beneficial towards pensioners and therefore stayed at a different level to income. You can see it in pretty much every granular aspect of the economy and of social policy that you look at, that this is a government that has been delivering for the last 12 years exclusively to older people and has been sacrificing young people on that altar. So, yeah, it's an extremely broad war, generational war that they have engaged in and they have engaged in it throughout that period. Alan, um, shadow cabinet ministers, anyone I've spoken to is going, be careful of unforced errors. What do they mean by this? Is there a sort of jitteriness that creeps in when you begin to think this is yours to lose, which as a Spurs fan, I understand it completely. (laughs) Not as much as a Queen's Park Rangers fan. Uh, Yeah, I mean, Rupert Hart, what happened with Rupert Hart this year? He's not in a shadow cabinet. Uh, and Keir Starmer acted very quickly and decisively on that. But there's always this fear because we are not a party like the Conservative Party where their conference is all stage managed. We're not a party like the Conservative Party, which exists really in Parliament and doesn't exist outside of Parliament other than to you know have jumble sales and uh, whisk drives. Um, there's always someone, and you know, there's a fear of that. And there was a fear of that last week. I was amazed, or during this week, that nobody 
opened their gob and shouted something during the singing of the national anthem. You expected some, you know, somebody to make a, a statement there, and it didn't happen. And, and this business about going on picket lines. I mean, I was a trade union leader. I was involved in so many strikes. It's you know more than most because of the nature of our uh, members' work. I didn't want to see MPs and and ministers virtue signalling on our picket lines. Picket line was there for a reason. I wanted the Labour Party to win a general election. And they had nothing to do with strikes that our members called. We didn't ask the Labour Party, is this all right if we go out on strike? But this idea that if you do go out on strike, every Labour politician should be with you on the picket line. 98% of my members never went anywhere near a picket line. So... So, so Keir Starmer saying that you keep off the picket lines was just what Harold Wilson said, just what Clem Attlee said, just what every Labour leader has said. Um, so they need that discipline, and that discipline was 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 palpable over the period of the conference. Mm. Just as we're recording, I'm seeing a, a, a Sam Coates exclusive that Whitehall is to be told to find efficiency savings. Um, Chris Philp is to write to all secretaries of state within hours to say that uh, uh, there will be public spending reductions. Doesn't that happen like every month? I mean, I'm sorry, I seem to have heard this before. Considering what we were discussing in terms of where will they find this, I think that gives a clear indication of which way the wind is blowing. The markets Um, will be fine as long as they know that we're going to cut diversity training. That will sort sort this shit right out. It'll be great. (laughs) The British people are begging for cuts to the NHS. Back to to the Labour conference. At a fringe event, Lisa Nandy called nationalism a regressive ideology and Starmer promised there'll be no deal under any circumstances with the SNP. Why is Labour singling out the SNP with such gusto? Oh, I mean, this is a sign of confidence and confidence breeds confidence. Um, it's, they're betting. Well, look at the current government. Confidence yeah. doesn't always breed confidence, I'm afraid. Well, in a way it does, as I was saying earlier. You know, that can breed arrogance, but yeah. that's a different thing. I think. Um, I think I think they're betting that the, the SNP vote is softer than it looks. I think they may be right to do that. And here I'm setting myself up for endless attacks on Twitter. But they are betting that Scots may tire of Sturgeon before long, particularly if there is a Labour government in number 10. And it is certainly true that despite the... The, the, the what is in number what has it been in number 10 for the last few years <laughs> support for independence has not rocketed in the way that Nicola Sturgeon might have expected mm. there's a catch 22 for the SNP as well which is going on I mean if the labor was in government they'd get more of what they want and they'd get a government that was moving more in their direction but they need the Tories to be in power to fire up support for independence and that is a catch 22 that I think labor are very aware of and I think they know that the SNP are very, very unlikely to vote against them in the Commons. And so they won't need a confidence and supply agreement of the kind that the Tories had to do with the DUP in 2017, under May. Um, I can imagine there being non-aggression pacts in certain constituencies under the radar, but that's, that's a slightly different thing. But let me take you back. Is nationalism always regressive? That seems to me a grossly unfair way to describe the SNP right now. I, you know, I mean, mm. there is nothing in the political makeup that says regressive. And we say that because and, and it is entirely reasonable, given the state that the UK is in, for Scots to desire independence. And I've said this before, and yeah. I will say it again. I totally understand that instinct. Nonetheless, there are comparisons to be made with Brexit in terms of the impact, the wrench that it would have on Scotland to leave the UK. And I think a lot of Scots are aware of those. Okay, um, Ian, let's talk proportional representation. The oh, conference floor voted in favour of it. The leadership is much less keen, but how big a moment is this? I mean, not much. Uh, we didn't get much. It, it didn't dominate the agenda. Nothing. I mean, the Labour conference didn't dominate the agenda. I mean, it sort of it would have been very easy, and I imagine very many people were barely even aware that it happened because of the amount of news that's happening outside of the conference hall. Um, Lots of people, very decent people in Labour constituencies working on these campaigns have worked really fucking hard to make that vote happen. They've been working on this for two years. And I can't honestly, with my hand on my heart, stand and go, 
that's going to trigger something really meaningful in a change in Labour Party policy because that doesn't look like that's where we are. I think at the moment our best bet with Labour is not to push in the same way that it's not to push right now for EU membership or customs union membership. Mm. It's not to push for that. It's to push for, look, let's have some kind of royal commission on the reform of democracy and, you know, the constitution and blah, 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 blah. Tied up electoral with a, reform. No, 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 no. Look at no, no, not electoral no, reform. Okay. Specifically, not that. Like to, to to sneak it in alongside all the Boris Johnson sort of you know standards in public life mm. and you know reform of the House of Commons and the timetable and all of this stuff and and push for that because what I think Starmer wants is just to park all this stuff that looks like metropolitan bubble debate when people want to talk about the price of living. I think he wants to park it. So give him a vehicle to park it. That fight can happen, you know, if Labour wins the election. I, I suspect at the moment that's our best chance of getting something done. Alan, you've been pushing for a referendum on PR since the last time Labour were in government. Had it been in place, do you think, in retrospect, would giving UKIP or the Brexit Party, someone like that, a place in Parliament, have exposed their shaky policies or emboldened them even further? I have campaigned for electoral reform all my political life. I converted my union to it, uh, one of the few unions that were arguing for it. Um, And yet I agree with every word uh, that was just spoken. I, I think it's absolutely right to concentrate on priorities. And the public's priority is not electoral reform. And my worry at the moment is that the people who are coming round to changing the voting system and getting rid of the first-past-the-post will welcome. But some of the reasoning they're putting forward, and this is bound to seep out into the debate, some of the reasoning is because it will keep the Tories out of power. Mm. That is not a, a principled argument for electoral reform. And this is another reason why Ian's right on this, because Keir Starmer instinctively feels that. Ros, let's wrap things up. Conservative Conference starts this Sunday. Um, they thought they would be hailed as heroes, but the atmosphere is said to be quite different. <laughs> um, loads of big beast backbenchers are actually boycotting it. There are news of a whole list of people like Sajid Javid and Rishi Sunak, David Davies, that are not even going. They can't really announce anything that costs anything. <laughs> Or markets will tumble again. What can they hope for out of this conference? It's hard to know. I mean, possibly they could hope to buy some more time in terms of maintaining a degree of internal unity and coherence. It depends how much they can block out the real world as they gather in Birmingham uh, or how much it will intrude on the conference bubble. Um, Truss will undoubtedly deliver a speech in which he seeks to channel Thatcher in terms of style and message. Ladies, not for turning. You will almost certainly hear a variation on that, even if she isn't quite crass enough to repeat the <laughs> phrase in its entirety. But that will that will be what she is trying to do. And I don't know if there's some dignity, if you're a Conservative MP, in going down with the sinking ship and saluting as you do so. I cannot imagine that this can in any way turn around their fortunes because we know that the more that the public sees of trust, and undoubtedly her speech will get some airing on the news, the more they see of her, the less they like her. Mm. Um, and that, and given that they are already in some polls 17 points behind, um, it's not going to help them. I cannot see this being anything more than a disaster. I wonder if Johnson is going. Uh, it will be interesting to see what he does if he if he does go. And much as I, you know, would like love to never see Johnson again, nonetheless there will, might be some mild entertainment on that front. But. I say let's pay for him to go on a holiday to Crete. Yeah, this is a doomed party. This is the end of days as far as they are concerned. This may well be their last conference in power. I certainly hope so. Before we go, let's take a look at the stories that aren't getting the attention they deserve in Under the Radar. Ros. Yep, this is the news that appeared strangely enough in the Daily Mail, but there you go, that uh, the French were on the point of doing a deal over migrants crossing the channel and there was going to be a degree of cooperation offered between the French and English British border authorities and it all got nixed after Trust made her 
crass, again, I use the word again, comment about whether Emmanuel Macron was a friend or foe during the leadership campaign. And he was so, yeah, he was so irate about it that he said, right, that's not happening. Uh, You know, we saw that moderate response where he said something articulate that may, you know, just made me want to weep for the state of this country. (laughs) Um, But in actual fact, what they did was was nix a deal that would have uh, helped to address this issue. I I miss that. That really did go that. under the yeah. radar, and it's completely in our in our uh, wheelhouse, really, isn't it? Uh, how about you, Ian? Uh, Iran, um, because of what's happening here right now, and I suppose Ukraine. We're not talking about it that much. We're talking a bit. What's happening in Iran is extraordinary. It's not just the scale of the protests against the regime. It's specifically the fact that young men are going out to support women. Mm. And that is a precondition of successful change. And like the women that are being killed there, many of them have been murdered now by the forces. Uh, look at the video. There's a video that I would recommend that you look online of one of the women who was shot. Her name is Hadis Najafi. Okay? And it's a very short video. You only see the back of her head. It's on the day of the protest. And she takes her hair, which is uncovered, and she ties it up in a knot before she goes into the protest. And right in that moment, you see so much of what they fear, which is not just about the classic way that the stuff around, you know, the veil is discussed. It's always about, you know, beauty and and modesty and all of that. It's not. It's that she's in control of her shit. She would do up her fucking hair if she wants to and run into a protest, which is exactly what she did. And they murdered her for that. There's not much that we can do from here to help. I've asked what can be done, and there's very little from the outside. There's some tech stuff that I just can't understand around sort of, you know, using your own sources to do a virtual sort of backup so that they can use, and I just can't get my fucking head around. If you're a tech person, that can be done. Um, But what you can do is just make noise about what they're doing in Iran because the bravery that they're showing in the face of oppression is truly fucking extraordinary. Alan, how about you? Mine is um, from the Labour Party conference. Bridget Phillipson, uh, excellent shadow education secretary, made an announcement that didn't get a lot of coverage. She said they're going to, when they uh, restore the 45% tax rate for higher earners, they're going to use the money to provide free primary school, uh, free breakfast for all primary school pupils. Now, that was great because there's been no initiatives on education. You know, we've had five education secretaries in a year. In the year between my first thriller and second thriller being published in September, five education secretaries. James Cleverly was the education secretary virtually through the school holidays. And so to hear any initiative from about education is good. This is a brilliant one because in Hull, the city I was proud to represent, we did this in, two, in 2002 out of our own revenue. We didn't get any help from the government. We provided free school meals and healthy breakfast for all of uh, primary school kids, overseen by Hull University, did a study of it, analysed it over three years, showed the um, the incredible results in terms of children's educational attainment. And then we lost power to the Lib Dems and they, to their disgrace, abolished it. They've done it in Wales, by the way. Mark Drakeford introduced this in Wales and this is an extension of that policy that Bridget Phillipson announced. And I think it's an important one. My son doesn't have a classroom at the moment because the roof is leaking into his into his classroom, so they have to get taught in the library. And they won't. So I said, did you do maths yesterday today? And he said, no, we haven't done maths at all this week because we don't have a whiteboard because we don't have a remote control for the whiteboard. And the teacher says that she's ordered it off Amazon. It's like, what the I'm sure there are many stories like this. It is. Well, just... they'll be getting a letter soon, the department, <sighs> telling them to find savings because yeah, uh, yeah. quarting and trust basically fucked the budget. Yeah. Yeah. Um, mine is about the pharmaceutical companies SI and Biogen. There's a new Alzheimer's drug called Lecanemab or Lesanemab. I don't know how you pronounce that scene there. Um, it's in uh, second stage human trials. Everyone is getting incredibly excited about the results. Uh, it's meant to be getting extraordinary uh, retardation of the the development of the disease, especially when taken in initial stages. And I think it's it feels like this is a a big one. And that's the show. Thanks to Roz. Thank you. To Ian. Thank you very much. And to our lovely guest, Alan Johnson. Thank you.
Alan Johnson's second political thriller, One of Our Ministers is Missing, is out now. And stay tuned for the extra bit exclusively for backers on Patreon. That's after a theme song, Demon is a Monster, by Corner Shop. And a thank you to some of the backlog of loyal and brilliant supporters. Thanks so much to Anna McDuff, Glenn Sayer, Amy Luce, Niall Scott, Tobias Andrews, L.A., Felix Chapman and Daz Wright. Uh, thank you from me to Simon Long, Christian Wren, Joe Fitzgerald, Mark Gelbert, Gareth Morgan, Richard James, Elizabeth Munn and Kyle MacDonald. And a big hug from me to Heike Stopper, Mike McMahon, Richard Terry, Anna Miller, David Patterson, Jim Lee, Ian Mardell and Greg Barron. Oh God, What Now? was presented by Alex Andre with Roz Taylor and Ian Dunt. Audio production is from me, Robin Lieber, and the producers are Alex Reese, Jacob Archbold and Jelena Sofronevich, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. Lead producer is Jacob Jarvis, group editor is Andrew Harrison, and Oh God, What Now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit, exclusive for Patreon backers. This week, Sky released This England, a dramatisation of how Downing Street reacted to the Covid outbreak, both in the country at large and within its walls. Like Brexit, the uncivil war before it, it has roles for Dominic Cummings, played by Simon Paisley Day, costumed brilliantly like Golem on a fishing trip, and for Boris Johnson, played under layers and layers of makeup and fat suits by Kenneth Branagh. Um... Roz, Ian, and I have seen it. Um, what were your initial thoughts? Oh, this was so traumatic. I, I just, it was, <laughs> it was hard to watch. I never want to go back to that period in my life again. And you know, just seeing it all unfold again, and the ghastly inevitability that you knew was coming and and was not acknowledged. It was just, uh, yeah, it was traumatic. But I've heard suggestions that. It's too soft on Boris Johnson. It's too kind. That was a little teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast. If you'd like a little bit more Oh God What Now every week without ads and a day early, then sign up to back us on Patreon for as little as £2 a month. You'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast, Oh God What Else, every Monday morning. Your support keeps us going. Thanks for listening. See you next week. <laughs>